All right, well, let's grab our Bibles and open to uh, Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah chapter 4, and let me pray. Lord, we pray that you would be with us. We need to hear from you. We need to understand what you were trying to tell the audience then and what in what ways to apply it to our lives now. So I pray you'd be our teacher, that we'd have our, our proverbial listening caps on, and that we'd be able to apply it to our lives, making us more like your son. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. So um, years ago, uh, not too far back, actually, I got a chance to go to uh, Italy for the first time. And I went to Rome. And we were down uh, in the area of the ruins, down where the Forum is, and, and all kinds of other ruins are down there. And as you make your way from that section down further, you're going towards the, the Colosseum. And just before you get to the Colosseum, there's a gigantic arch. And perhaps you are familiar with it. It's called Titus's Arch. And Titus was a ruler in Rome uh, in uh, somewhere around the uh, 60s and 70s uh, A.D., and, uh, and, and it is the original, and it's still there, and it's very accessible. You can walk right up to it. Well, I knew that then in, encased in the, in the face of the Titus Arch were various um, conquests that Titus had, had done, one in particular of his ruining and, and, and subjugating uh, Jerusalem, Israel and Jerusalem. And I knew that there was a, a cutout, uh, I'm not sure what the, the technical term is when they carve it out of, out of stone, but there was a picture of Titus's army, the Roman army, carting off the very well-known symbol for Israel, a menorah. And so I wanted to see it for myself. Well, there was a crowd of people, and I waited until they all went away, and then I got up right in front of where the, 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 uh, the, the picture was, and sure enough, it's amazing to look at, the Roman soldiers carting off the stuff they stole out of the temple, including uh, the the uh, candlestick, the golden candlestick. And while I'm sitting there looking at it, just, you know, kind of admiring it, going, golly, here is a major event and uh, that marks some specific things about the Bible. And I'm standing right in front of it. It was chiseled, uh, you know, not too long after they came back to Rome. It was just a moment. And this guy kept sticking his head in between me and the, and the, uh, and the, and the statue, I guess you'd call it. It's not really a statue, but... But he, but he kept bothering me, and I said, finally, you know, look, I'll get out of the way. I just want one good picture of this. And he gave me this look like, you know, whatever. Um, it was a moment, because it was a, a recognizable symbol. And it's still a recognizable symbol, the menorah, the golden candlestick. And tonight's lesson is actually all about that. So, well, at least it starts there. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 4. We've been talking about the visions, and we took the first four visions last week. The, the man among the myrtle trees and the colored horses, the four horns and the, and the workmen that worked on them, the man with the measuring line that went around uh, uh, Jerusalem measuring it. Then we saw Joshua the high priest uh, and some things uh, about him. Tonight we're going to start in chapter 4 uh, with this golden lampstand. lampstand. And my point for tonight's lesson is the promise of the power of God. You know, in, in lesson number one, we talked about the promise of, of, of his presence. And then last week, we talked about the promise of his protection. And tonight, I want to talk about the promise of power, the power of the Holy Spirit. So chapter four, verse number one, I'm going to read a bit with you. The Bible says this, Then the angel who talked with me returned and wakened me. 
Now, it's not like he wasn't, uh, that he was woke completely up. He's still having a dream. He's still having a vision. And as a man is wakened from his sleep, similar to that, he's kind of groggy. He asked me, what do you see? And, and, uh, and uh, Zachariah answers, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lights on it with seven channels to the lights. So just for a moment, you've seen the picture of it. It's a stand and out comes the, the various uh, leaves on that stand. At the top of each one of those is a little tiny bowl, bowl. And in that bowl would have been oil and a little wick floating in that oil. And so when they were all lit, you got nice, nice bright light. Uh, and, and he sees that. He sees this golden lampstand with this bowl at the top. And, and uh, also he sees two olive trees, one on either side of the lampstead. So we got a lampstead in the middle, olive tree over here, olive tree over here. He says, uh, the, uh, I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he answered, do you not know what they are? And he says, nope, I don't know. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Well, what are you, O mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. Now, the capstone is the very last uh, piece of stone that would have been put in a building. The cornerstone would have been done first. The building would have been built. And at the very top, when it's all finished, maybe ornate, it would have been a capstone. And he's saying that... that um, He's going to be, Zerubbabel's going to be able to put a capstone to this temple that they're trying to build. Build. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation. His hands will also complete it. Um, then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who despises the day of small things? Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Now there are seven eyes, or seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range around the earth. Then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and on the left? And I asked him, what are these two olive branches besides the two gold pipes that pour out golden oil? And he said, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord. These are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord in all of the earth. So the first thing we got to answer is what did Zechariah actually see? Well, he saw this Jewish uh, candlestick. And he saw that it had seven bowls and seven lights in the middle of it. And he would have immediately recognized it. It was a well-known symbol of Israel. Also, he would have known it because he would have been very familiar with the furniture that was in the temple and in the tabernacle. So in both the temple and the tabernacle, in the holy place, which was the front room where the, the priests could go, there was a series of pieces of furniture, one of which was this candlestick. Now, remember, the high priest is the only one that could go in the holiest, holy, most holy place, the second room. But the first room, the priest would come in and come out on a, on a frequent time, several times a day, because that lampstead had to, be, had to be taken care of. You had to check and make sure there was plenty of oil in it, and you had to check the wicks. And every now and then you took it all out, got rid of all the soot, and, and lighted and lit it back up. So this candlestick, he recognizes it. But, but it's got two olive trees beside it. And the picture you should have is a branch is over pouring its oil into these, into these bowls. So that's what he sees. The two olive uh, trees 
representing or not representing are very well known in that culture in that area olive trees are there they're still there they uh they survive in an arid kind of uh you know uh, countryside they don't require much very much oil when i was in jerusalem and we went to the garden of eden which is on the hillside on the mount of olives looking over the mount where the temple is uh, we were in there, and uh, the pastor we were with was giving a devotion. But I saw the olive trees, and and I know they live forever and ever and ever. So I wanted to go see if I could find one that might be old enough to have been there when Jesus was. So while he was preaching, I'm overlooking at all the, the stumps to see how many circles there were on the stump to see if I could identify any one of the trees that might be close to that age. Of course, I didn't find any, but... An olive tree was an important part of their culture. They not only got olives from it, but they got oil from it. And that was important both in terms of, of spiritual things, but also it was used for a whole bunch of other things. Um, turn with me to Psalm 23, a very well-known psalm, Psalm 23. You know it, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But down about verse 5, the psalmist says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So a couple of things here. He's, he's uh, in reference to sheep. So when he says, uh, you're going to anoint my head with oil, um, different things are going on there. One is um, a, a sheep is most susceptible to disease that he gets through his eyes or his mouth. So little parasites get up there and get inside and cause them to get sick. The oil, particularly added to it some herbs or whatever, became a, a kind of medicine. And they would smear it all over the eyes and around the mouth to keep the animal healthy. And then another use of that oil was to put it on the head, particularly of the young, young uh, boys. And when they smack heads, they roll off each other. So the oil was used as a... And an ability to free up the friction to make it so it wouldn't be such a bang when their head smacked, and also as a medicine. In the Bible, the, 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 the picture of oil is often equated with the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit, uh, when mentioned in the Old Testament as oil, has these properties, these kinds of things that are true about him, which of course is true. He is a medicine to our soul. He is, an, is a means to avoid friction and all kinds of other things. So he sees, he sees not only the, the golden uh, lampstand, but, stand, but he also sees these two olive trees. Now the real trick is what does it mean? What's, he, what's trying to be communicated to the people then? And we'll talk about how it applies to us maybe a little later. The seven-bold candlestick, as I said before, always symbolizes Israel. And he's, he's saying to Israel through Zerubbabel's pre, or free, through Zechariah's preaching that, hey, God is always going to be our resource. We're not going to run out of oil. We're not going to have no, uh, be a, have light be absent in the, in the holy place. We're going to have plenty of light. We're going to have plenty of oil because God is not going to let it run dry. The resource to fill those bowls was not the priest that came and go, came and went, but God. God was going to make sure that his people have what they need when they need it. And what a message it would have been to those people that are trying to rebuild the, te the temple and are trying to rebuild their lives, to have a message come in the form of a dream. Hey, guys, I'm here for you. I am going to be your resource. 
You can count on me for what you need. In verse number 6, back in Zechariah 4.6, is the key to this tonight's lesson. In 4.6 it says, um, This is the word of the Lord uh, to Zerubbabel, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. In other words, the, the things that you need are going to come to you, not by might and not by power. This temple that needs to be built, it's going to be built, and it's not going to be because there's might or power. This is one of those places where knowing a little bit about the language helps us. The word might there actually refers to like the strength of an army. It's a collective strength. It's a whole bunch of people committed to something and getting it done. When it says power there, that word is an individual person's gifts. So, so somebody, you know, has got a lot of gifts, brings it to the table, and a task gets done. Specifically, what he's saying is, this rebuilding of the temple is not going to come because a whole bunch of you rally together to get it done. Nor is it going to get done because one of you is really a smart cookie. He's saying, what will get this job done is my power, the Holy Spirit. So not by my, not by power, but by my spirit, this job is going to get done. And then down towards the, the latter part, verse 10, he says, now, who despises the day of small things? What he's trying to say to us is, wait a minute, just because it's not Solomon's temple doesn't mean that's not where I'm going to meet you. It is where I will meet with my people. It may not look like Solomon's temple. It may not have all the gold. It may not be the same exact dimensions. It may not have all the accoutrements with it. It, it, may, it, may, it may be looking a little sad. <coughs> Excuse me. But you should not despise the day of small things. So Zerubbabel is going to lay not only the foundation, but he's going to be there to put the capstone and finish off the building. God's saying to the people... It might look like a, you know, second-rate version, but I'm telling you, we're going to get it done, and by using my power to do so, and I will meet with you there. And the two olive trees, this is kind of interesting. Um, they were the two that were anointed to serve the Lord throughout the earth. Who are they? What are they? Well, likely, they directly refer to Zerubbabel and Joshua, the two leaders that were, were commandeering the effort at that, that, at that moment. But when you, when you fast forward to Revelation chapter 11, you're going to see two witnesses show up towards the end of, of the, uh, of the uh, time there. And those two witnesses are, are going to be identified or are supposed to be identified as maybe uh, Moses and Elijah. And some other commentators have said, well, these two trees and or the two witnesses are in reference to Christ, the two aspects of Christ, his divine nature and his human nature. This is another one of those times where we don't know. It does seem to dovetail with Revelation 11, but there's no way to really know for sure. What we do know is that through God's power, that is through the Holy Spirit, the temple will be completed. And what a message that must have been to them. In the, in the midst of their chaos and hard work and not being able to find the supplies they need and people not showing up to work, God's declaring, hey, it's going to get done. So then we get to our, our second uh, vision that he has, chapter 5 and verse number 1. And I, I called it in the morning class last week, the flying squirrel. 
but it actually is the flying scroll. So let's make sure you know what a scroll is. Scroll is just a piece of paper, more likely a, a piece of parchment, a piece of, of um, uh, skin that's been cleaned up and everything and becomes a writing source. Is like this, a, a scroll, and it's flying. It's moving through the air. Um, I looked again, and there before me was a flying scroll. He asked me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. And then he tells the dimensions, 30 feet long, 15 feet wide. Um, and then he said to me, this is the curse that is going out over the whole land, for according to what it says on one side, every thief, thief will be banished, and according to what it says on the other Everyone who swears falsely will be banished. The Lord Almighty declares, I will send it out, and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. It will remain in his house and destroy it, both its timbers and its stones. So again, let's, let, let's get our arms around what did, what did uh, Zechariah see? He saw this flying scroll. Now, it's the same dimensions, 15 by 30, 15 feet by 30 feet, as the, um, as the tabernacle was. And it's also the same dimensions as the porch was on Solomon's temple. So they're, they're catching on when they hear the dimensions. They're going, well, we, we know about those dimensions. That, that are, that's associated with, with both the, the tabernacle and the temple. Now, when it scrolls like this, you can write on it. You can write on the inside, and you can write on the outside. And what, what was written there were two words. One was thief, and the other one was liar. Now, he's making a reference to Exodus chapter 20, where we see the first listing of the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments were given to, to Moses on a, on a stone tablet, Right? And, and the first five were written on one side, and the next five were written on the other side. On one side was don't steal, and on the other side was don't lie. So in reference to the commandments, in reference to the, the, the two that would have been on either side of the temple, this scroll uh, is, is now written that way. Again, they would have recognized the two and, and brought to mind the, tab, the tablet of the Ten Commandments. Now, he doesn't stop there. There's some other uh, interesting things. Uh, he, uh, he's going to see, let's see. Oh, I don't want to go in, in too far. Let me, let me just stop right there. So what does it mean? Well, it means that people commit sin. He says, he says um, these, these folks, this, this, these people who are both thieves and, and, and lying, they're liars, they're thieves, they're sinners. People commit sin. And a curse is on them. God holds people according to their sin. Sin has consequences. Now, we don't like to think about that. We like to think about a, a very loving God who floats around in the heavens with, you know, kind of a grandfatherly Father Christmas, you know, passing out goodies to all of his people. And yes, God is a very tender, loving God, but he is also an incredibly almighty God who, who does hold people accountable for their sin. And that's essentially what this, this flying piece of paper is suggesting, that these people, uh, you know, when, when the time comes, the house is going to get destroyed. Through God's power, through the Holy Spirit, the people of God are going to get cleansed one way or another. 
you know, either voluntarily or, or God's going to do it. Not, not as much fun as the uh, lampstand uh, dream. Come to the third, the woman in a basket. I like this one. Chapter 5, verse 5. Then the angel who was speaking to me came forward and said to me, Look up and see uh, what this is that is appearing. I asked, What is it? He replied, It's a measuring basket. Okay, let's pause right there. So, uh, in that culture, they didn't have, you know, measuring cups. Uh, they didn't have uh, bushels that had precise uh, measurements. They didn't have, a, you know, a measuring tape. They had, to, they had to come up with things that could be somewhat standardized. So, remember, we talked about from your elbow to your fingertips, that's a cubit. So, a cubit's going to be different depending on the person, but, but it's a standard of measurement. When you were measuring things out, you did it by cubits. When you're measuring uh, dry goods, you use a certain size basket. And that basket was called an ephah, E-P-A-H-A. No, E-P-H-A-H, ephah, ephah. There you go, got it, I think. Um, it was a standard size, it was large. And so what he's saying is that I see a measuring basket. And then he added, this is the iniquity of the people throughout the land. He equates that basket with sin. Then the cover of lead, there was a cover on the top of the basket, and it was made of, of a metal, very heavy. It was raised up, and there in the basket, voila, sat a woman. Now, of all of our visions, I think this one's kind of the coolest. So, so he has a dream, big old basket, in the middle of the basket's a woman, on top of the basket is a lead top. And he said, this is wickedness. He gets very direct. Uh, and he pushed her back into the basket, and pushed the lead cover down over the mouth of the basket. Then I looked, and up there before me were two women. We got two more, with wind in their wings. These two women have wings. They had wings like those of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between heaven and the earth. I I'm not an expert on storks, but I understand they've got wide wings. So here we have a basket. Woman's in the middle of the basket, lead top on the top of the basket, and the basket's being carried along by two other women who have wings. Verse 10, where are they taking the basket, I asked the angel who was speaking to me. To the country of Babylon. Your Bible might say Sinar, S-I-N-A-R. To build a house for it. When it's ready, the basket will be set there in its place. My goodness gracious, what is going on here? Well, let's, let's remind ourselves of what he saw. He saw that basket, the large one that was used for measuring. Um, he saw a lead cover on the top of it, and when it was raised up, there sat a woman. The woman was then carried along by two other women who had gigantic wings, and they were carried to Babylon. Now, Babylon is the picture of sin, always in the Bible. It's exile, it's bad, it's out there, it's where you go when you can't get a hold of, of yourself and, and reign in your sin. Now, what does it mean? Well, he starts off very clearly in verse 8, says, this is wickedness. He's just saying this woman in the basket represents the sin of Israel. Israel is absolutely entrenched. And, and because they were entrenched, God's saying, again, there are consequences to, to their actions. And they're going to get removed back to the land, back to, back to the exile, to get out of there. They're not going to be back in Israel trying to rebuild their lives. Um. The two women are simply, again, agents of God doing his bidding. 
And so what we take away from this particular dream is that, that judgments are according to the measure of the holiness that's found in the house of the Lord. And I, and I wanted you to look at Amos, uh, Jonah, Micah, and Amos, Jonah, Micah, yeah, Jonah, Micah, and Amos, Amos, Jobadiah, Jonah, Micah, there we go, Amos, Amos chapter, what did I say, three, I think. In Amos chapter three, listen to this verse, it lends itself to what we're just talking about. He says in Amos three, verse two, you only have I chosen of all the families of the earth, therefore... Because you're my chosen ones, I will punish you for all your sins. See, when, when we think about Israel, we think, whoa, man, how did they get to be God's chosen ones? Well, but God's standard was clear. In his choosing, he made absolutely clear that he was to be center of their lives, number one. And when he was not, he made clear that they are opening themselves up for uh, repercussion. That, that, that the, the, the consequence of their sin would be overwhelming. In this particular case, the consequence is they're going to be taken away. So judgment is in measure of sin, which is in measure of our rebe- rebellion to God. When something bad happens in, in our lives, sometimes it's just because we're living in a fallen world. Sometimes it's because of sin in, in someone else's life. Sometimes it's just your, your, you know, your collateral damage when your husband's drinking himself to death and, and doesn't go to work and you lose the house, the, the, the loss of the house and you being out on the street is collateral damage to his sin. But sometimes those things that happen in our lives that are, that are unpleasant or, 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 or are there not, not necessarily because of everybody else's or just the sin in the world, they might be in direct consequence to me. I'm in rebellion. And God's going, knock, knock, knock. Hey, lighten up. Quit it. Stop. There are consequences to this. And that's what he's saying to Israel with, with the picture of woman, uh, the woman being carried away. The idea is that through God's power, again, his Holy Spirit, Ultimately, sin will be eradicated from Israel, and, and ultimately it will be eradicated from all of God's people. He's saying it won't always be like this. You won't always be on the receiving end. They were on the receiving end when they were sent to exile. And now they're back, and he's saying, clean up your act, because there is judgment on sin. But ultimately, I am for my people. And, the, and sin itself will be eradicated. You and I know sin was eradicated at the cross. It was, it was done with. When Christ declared, it is finished, implied in that are so many theological truths. But, but a very obvious truth is that there, no more, there was no more power to sin. It was finished. It had been paid for. It had been eradicated. And those who put their faith and trust in him have that understanding. So that's that dream. And we're going to go to the eighth one. It's the four chariots. We're back in uh, Zechariah. So we're in chapter 6. He says, I looked again, I looked up again, and there before me were four chariots. They were coming out between two mountains, mountains of bronze. He's suggesting strength, uh, immovability. Nobody's messing with those mountains. The first chariot had red horses. Second chariot had black horses. Does this sound like anything you've heard before? Over in our very first vision, the third uh, had white, the fourth had dappled. 
or just speckled, all of them powerful. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered me, these are the four spirits of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the Lord, uh, in the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The one with the black horses is going toward the north country. The one with the white horses towards the west. The one with the dappled horses toward the south. When the powerful horses went out, they were straining to go throughout the earth. And he said, go, go throughout the earth. So they went throughout the earth. Then he called to me and said, look, those going toward the north country have given my spirit rest in the land of the north. Now, what does he see? He sees four literal chariots. There were chariots as a part of their culture way back. You can remember uh, when Saul uh, died, he got an arrow and then he, then he kind of committed Harry Carey on his own. He died in a chariot in a battle. There were chariots in that, in that uh, season of Israel's history. Well, there are chariots certainly at, at this time. And what he saw were literally four chariots. And they were coming out from two mountains. The two mountains are likely the Mount of Olives and the Mount, what we call Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Again, if you could just picture two, they're not mountains, uh, hills, we'll call them hills, with a valley in between. One on this side is Mount of Olives and on this side is Mount Zion. On Mount Zion, they cut the top of the mountain off and put the, the, the temple there. David bought it from Aruna as a, it was a threshing floor. And he wanted a place to, to meet with God and ultimately to move the tabernacle to. And that's what happened. The tabernacle got, melt, got moved to the top of Mount Zion. And then when Solomon's temple was made, it was on the top of Mount Zion. The Mount of Olives on the other side is a great place to sit and look across the valley at, at the Temple Mount. You can do that today. You get up on the top of Mount Olives and look across to the Temple Mount neither of which are moving, neither of which are going away, both of which feature prominently in Old Testament prophecy and in New Testament accomplishments as well. Jesus' ministry is often moving back and forth, going up to the temple, going back through Mount, the Mount of Olives, going off to Bethany and other places. So now, what is, what is, it, what, uh, what is he trying to say here? Well, the horses, once again represent agents of God. They're going out to do his bidding. And they're going to the, the four directions. The four directions, again, might represent just the geographical neighbors, the folks to the north, the folks to the south, the folks to the east, the folks to the west. It also may represent the four succeeding kingdoms that Daniel discusses in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. The, Daniels be, or the uh, uh, kingdoms being Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. We're not sure what the represent here, representation here is, but the point of it all is God is, is doing his thing. He is accomplishing his will. The power to do God's will rests with God. And through that power, God will do exactly what he planned from the beginning. So that ends the, the eight prominent visions or dreams the latter part of chapter 6 is usually considered a bonus vision. Some say it's not actually a vision, a dream. I think it is. It sure sounds like it. Um, my Bible is entitled it, A Crown for Joshua. And, and I'm calling it that, a, a bonus vision, a crown for Joshua. So let's look at 
the word of the Lord came to me, take silver and gold from the exiles. And he names three guys. Uh, let's see. It's Heldai, Tobijah, and uh, Jediah, Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon. Go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and gold and make a crown. Now, if, if you got that far, and then he goes on and says, and, and set it on the head of the high priest Joshua. Bells are ringing in the minds of the, of the Jewish hearers. What? A crown for a priest? No. No priest had a crown. Only kings got crowns. So what are you saying? That, that we're supposed to go get the silver and gold from these three dudes that brought it back from exile, make a crown, and go crown the high priest. Beep, 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 tilt. No way. Uh-uh. This isn't done. Let me keep reading. Uh, he says, um, take, take it to jo- uh, Joshua. Tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch. Now, we've seen that term before, and it's a reference to the Messiah. He is called the branch in a whole number of places in, in your Bible. He says, you, uh, his, his name is the branch, and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty, and he will sit and rule on his throne. Again, tilt, 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 light, flashing lights. High priests don't sit on thrones. Kings sit on thrones. And he will be a priest on his throne. Oh, no! There's a, there's a story in Second Chronicles of uh, King Uzziah. He gets impatient and decides to go into the temple and offer a sacrifice himself. And the consequences, uh, it didn't go well for him. The consequences are he, he had a case of leprosy. High priests did their thing. Kings did their thing. They don't mix. Keep, let me keep going. He will be a priest on his throne and there will be harmony between the two, between the two positions of priest and king. And the crown will be given to, uh, to uh, Heldai, uh, Tobijah and Jediah, and he throws in Hin, as a memorial to the temple of the Lord. Those who are far away will come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. This will happen if you diligently obey the Lord. So, my goodness, what does he see? He sees silver and gold being taken from three of the exiles who returned. Their names are interesting. The first guy, named, his name is Robust. Uh, Tobijah, his name is God's goodness. And the last one, his name means God knows. And they were to take those precious metals, melt them down, and make a crown, and go set the crown on the head of, of Joshua. Now, Joshua is the spiritual leader. He's come back with uh, Zerubbabel to build the temple, and he is there as the priest to be able to start all the offerings and all the things that go into having a place to meet with God. To have a crown made for the priest was an astonishing thought. So let's ask the question, what does it mean? It means that this crowning of Joshua prophesies the very unique role that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, uh, held. The Bible tells us he was both prophet, priest, and king. Uniquely. No other figure in the Old Testament, or for that matter in the New, could take upon themselves those names, those roles, 
do those jobs. There were kings, there were priests, and there were prophets. Not all in the same person. And, 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 and the scripture makes it very clear that, that God, or, or that Jesus Christ, holds those three roles. And again, like I said, he's being prophesied as the branch. And I gave you some verses to look up about that. So what's the point here? Again, through God's power, being the Holy Spirit, Christ, the Messiah, which is what that means. Kids always think Christ is God's last name. You know, Jesus is his first name and Christ is his last name. No, Jesus is his personal name and Christ is a title. It really ought to be Jesus, comma, the Messiah, the anointed one. The, the word anoint just means the Messiah, the one that was picked out to save his people from their sins. Jesus alone is going to become the prophet. You can see that in Luke 7, the priest. In, in 1 Timothy uh, 2, verse 5, he talks about there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, not a bunch of priests. He's it. He is the high priest. And then king, Luke chapter 1. He says he comes after, the, after his father David and is going to sit on his throne. So the power of God in showing up through this bonus vision is, is finishing off the idea that all of these are a picture of God at work. And it's going to culminate when the crown actually can go on the high priest. And the high priest is Jesus Christ. He gets the crown as king and he also serves as the prophet. Well, that's a, that's a mouthful. I mean, that, you know, that's, what, 35 minutes of weird dreams. Um, I, I don't know which one would be your favorite. We'll talk about that in a minute. But, but I had to ask my standard question, all right, so what? What are we getting out of that? I kind of get some stuff for Israel, but, but what is in it for us? In what way can we apply it? And I said, I said to myself, the truth is God's power in the person of the Holy Spirit is readily available to all of us. Just like the, the olive trees supplied the oil that was necessary to keep the lamp burning, every need you and I have is available to us through our relationship with Jesus Christ in the form of the Holy Spirit. Remember the night before he died in John 14, and they're all wigged out, he, he says to him, I'm going I'm to ask the Father to send you another comforter, another one just like the one you got talking to you right now. I'm asking God to give you an ever-present part of the Trinity of God, and he, and he lives within you. I've said this before, and I'm sure you understand, but in the Old Testament, the Spirit did not live in people. There are accounts where it will say the Spirit came upon him, and he was able to do so-and-so. But it didn't live within. It didn't reside. It'd be like running around with a cord trying to find a plug. And, and yeah, sometimes they were given instructions and they found the plug and they got the light or the power that was necessary. But in the case of the New Testament, the believer, the Holy Spirit comes to live within. And we have what's residing in us now, not, not a cord that needs a plug, but, but a, a battery that never goes dead, that supplies all of our needs. And thinking about that, I thought about one of the names for God. It's El Shaddai. So El, E-L, is, uh, is singular for Elohim. And Elohim in the Old Testament is just the name that's used for God, any God, small God, small G God, 
not, not necessarily the, the God you and I serve. When you take the word El, it means, you know, God, divinity. And the, and the, and the word on the other side of it, El Shaddai, Shaddai, uh, the D-A-I at the end is just telling you a, a kind of a, a, not a tense, but an indicator. But, but the root of it is Shad, S-H-A-D. And in Hebrew, S-H-A-D means breast. Okay, I'm scratching my head here. I got God and a breast. Where, where are you going with this? So Elohim, or El, suggests power, majesty, you know, almightiness. And the breast, what does the breast suggest? The, bre- the breath, their breast, rather, is the source of all life. A child is born and takes his mother's milk. Life is, is, is indicated and, and propagated and given freely through, the, through that particular part of a woman's body. He uses that as an illustration to say, wait a minute, I am both almighty and tender. I am not just tender. I am not just almighty. I am both. El Shaddai. And the loose translation of that in English is the God who is enough. What's he enough for? Everything. He's enough for every emotional need. He's enough for every spiritual need. He's enough for every physical need. Now, he's not a vending machine. We don't, you know, punch B6 and get what we want. But ultimately, God is there to provide resources to his kids on a 24-hour basis. And he does so both as almighty and tender. And the second thing, I just, I just want to say this before we finish this lesson, kind of a cautionary, but remember that to experience the power of God in your life, the, the Bible says we've got to walk blameless. Go to Genesis chapter 17. So in Genesis chapter 17, this is one of those places where El Shaddai shows up. And it's the time when, when God's going to convince uh, uh, Abraham that even though he's old and Sarah's old, he's still going to have a baby. And the El Shaddai is going to make that happen. But look at Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. He says, When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. God Almighty is I am El Shaddai. Your, your Bible might even have a little note of that. You walk before me and be blameless. I am Almighty God. I am Almighty and I am tender. And I am here for you. Your part of the deal is to walk before me and be blameless. Now, when I was reading that the other night, I went, Oh, this is awful, Lord, because I know I am not blameless. I, 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 I in English, translate the word blameless to mean sinless. And if all of us were honest, nobody's going to raise their hand and say, I'm sinless. The best among us. So, so blameless can't mean sinless because in 1 John chapter 1 and verses uh, 8 and 9, he says, hey, if any of you guys say you're not a sinner, you're a liar. And the truth doesn't rest in you. you. There is sin in the life of every believer. So, if it doesn't mean sinless, what does it mean? Well, in Hebrew, it carries an interesting a little twitch. The interesting twitch is it means without guilt. To, to be blameless means to have no guilt. 
So, so let's think about that a minute. If we do have sin, how can we possibly have no guilt? How can we be blameless? We can be blameless when we make certain that our sin is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. When we embrace the cross and make him the center of our lives, the sin that is a natural part of every human being is covered. So I walk away from that experience blameless. Now, yes, I can be held accountable for the sin. I'm in the flesh. I need to stop it. I tell a lie and it it produces a consequence so bad. Too bad. It's yours. But ultimately, I am not blame. I am not going to be blamed. Ultimately, I am not going to be held accountable for my sin. That was the exchange, the death of Christ for my sin. The grace of God makes it so that I can be blameless, and that's why we talk a lot about having a, a short sin list to go to the Lord and confess our sin regularly, to say the same things about our sin that He would say, and and own it. To say, you know what, Lord, I go through my mind today and here's the things where I got off track today. And I recognize that and I recognize that. And I'm, I'm going to apply some effort to not do that again. I'm, I'm going to memorize some scripture that will help me there. I'm going to ask a friend to pray for me. I'm going to hold myself accountable. But I'm not ultimately blamed for my sin. When he says to be blameless, he's giving a little hint there of having a kind of relationship with the Lord where the blame goes on him. The, the, the punishment went on him, but it requires something of my life to, to walk before him. So the punchline of this lesson and, and what I hope to, you know, you get out of it that I, I did is that there is a promise from God to give us the power to live those kinds of lives. Why don't we live that way more often? Because we don't avail ourselves of the power of God. We look everywhere else until we run out of resources and then we go to him. When, when really what we ought to do is go to him first. And in every scenario of life, in relationships, in, in work scenarios, in health issues, in, in emotional and psychological issues, in troubles with children, in, in hassles in marriage, and all the other things that are a part of regular living, he wants us to come to him. Cast all your care on me because I care for you. I have all the resources you need. The olive trees are standing by and they're going to keep the light burning. That's the message of the, of the uh, visions we had for tonight. So let me pray. Father, thank you for what's here. And thank you for the ability to apply it. To think about you being El Shaddai on our behalf. Standing guard right next to us, ready to provide whatever we need if we will walk before you, if we will humble ourselves and, 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 and live a life that reflects you. Pray this tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.